I think the representatives of the island states said it best. COP27 in Egypt will be a referendum on climate justice. Welcome to Season 2 of Climate Talks, the podcast that follows the climate negotiations and this year the journey to COP27. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Cathy Oak, Melbourne Enterprise Fellow at the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Jackie Peel, Professor at the Melbourne Law School and Director of Melbourne Climate Futures. Welcome back, Jackie. Thanks, Cathy. It's great to be back. And just to note that we heard in the opening from Janine Felson, who was giving us an important call to action following on the negotiations from COP26 last year. Indeed. And before we do get started with this first episode of season two, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and we invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. So last year, Cathy, we followed the journey to COP26, which was the big climate conference in Glasgow. And this year, we're going to be looking at all things climate again on the road to COP27, which is going to be held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt in November. And this episode, we're joined by our guests, Robin Eckersley, who's a professor of social and political sciences at the University of Melbourne, and David Caroli, who was previously the chief research scientist in the CSIRO Climate Science Centre. And he's now back as an honorary professor at the University of Melbourne. So we'll be talking about COP27, we'll be talking about the science, we'll be talking about what to expect in 2022 leading up to COP27. But first, Cathy, let's do a bit of a recap, starting with what is COP? Well, COP, yes, is short for Conference of the Parties. It is the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. These COPs are annual meetings bringing together people from almost every country to provide a global response to the threat of climate change. COP26 in 2021 was the 26th meeting, and in 2022, this will be the 27th, so COP27. These meetings are critical to keeping 1.5 degrees alive. Yeah, and for any of our listeners wondering what the 1.5 degrees that we're keeping alive is, this <laughs> relates to the temperature goals of the Paris Agreement. That's the legally binding international treaty we have on climate change that was negotiated and adopted by 196 parties, that's just about every country, in Paris in 2015. And under the Paris Agreement, countries agreed to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees but critically, preferably to keep it to 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. Yeah, so 2021 and the lead up to COP26 was really seen as a decisive year for the Paris Agreement and the world. 
So after being delayed by a year due to COVID, the Glasgow meeting in November was a test to see if the Paris Agreement would work and countries would deliver climate action. So did it work, Jackie? Well, we're back for another season, Cathy. So there's definitely more, far more for us to talk about. And while a package of climate actions, I think, uh, that was concluded by countries at COP26, which is called the Glasgow Pact, was a disappointment in some ways, there were also some real moments of hope. And one of the key ones for me was that there's a real possibility now, I think, of keeping global warming below two degrees, according to scientific assessments, if all the pledges that are made by countries are actually achieved. If. If. That is significant, but the if is big. It's looking pretty critical. And But only seven years ago, it did look like we we're on track for four degrees Celsius. So, you know, 1.9 does sound a lot better than four. But ahead of COP27, at the end of this year, countries are being called to update their existing 2030 targets. And this includes Australia. Yeah, absolutely, Cathy. And we also saw some hope in Glasgow at COP26 and other areas that we'll talk about in this season. And are especially important for our low and middle income countries in the region. We started to see progress, for example, on the global goal on adaptation. And there was at least an acknowledgement by wealthy countries that they haven't met the promised $100 billion for climate finance, which are supposed to deliver by 2020. We're also seeing a lot more attention to the issue of loss and damage from climate change. Let's hope that if COP26 was about making promises, COP27 is about fulfilling those. This hope, this momentum is what these COPs are really about. And it's an opportunity to repeat the process again, take another step forward. But of course, noting that time is running out and we really can't continue to hope and move forward step by step or, you know, continuously. Yeah, so with an eye on that urgency, we are looking forward this year to some key milestones in the lead up to COP27 in Egypt that hopefully will help generate that momentum. Between February and September, we're going to see the Global Body for Assessing Climate Science, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, complete its first comprehensive assessment report since Paris in 2015. So we'll see the Working Group 2's report on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability out in late February. And Working Group 3 will then follow on the mitigation of climate change due in April. And then we'll sort of have the repackaging of all of that in a synthesis report released in early September. Yeah, and we'll cover all of those reports in future podcast episodes. And we'll also talk about other events some critical events coming up this year, including conferences on related topics, such as the UN Biodiversity Conference taking place in April in China and also in Stockholm later on on the 50 plus conference. And of course, Cathy, as all of us in Australia know, we have the Australian election sometime before 21 May. And that's sure to feature climate change in some way, given the history of climate politics and the climate wars in Australia. Indeed. But with that, Jackie, let's wrap up our latest in COP section of the podcast for today and turn to our guest speakers, Robin Eckersley and David Caroli. Hi, Robin. Welcome back to the show to once again set the scene for the COP year ahead. So the first question for you is to, well, can you describe to our listeners what to expect in the lead up to COP27 and why will COP27 be important? 
Hi, Cathy, and thanks for inviting me back. Well, the formal agenda for COP27 has not yet been released. We all know it's going to be in Egypt. We've heard already from the new COP president, uh, who's the foreign minister of Egypt. His name is Suma Shakrai. He said the main focus will be on achieving progress on the mandates that were issued back at COP26. But that won't mean anything for listeners. So I'm just going to focus on the really big ticket items. The most important one is that those parties that didn't enhance their 2030 ambition by Glasgow last year are asked to do it by this COP. Now, we all know that Australia is in the naughty corner because it uh, was the only developed country not to do this. So pressure will be on Australia and much will depend on what happens in the May election as to whether we leave the naughty corner. But the Glasgow Climate Pact also calls on all other countries to keep ramping up their ambition because we know that the mantra for COP26 was to keep 1.5 degrees alive, but it's still on death's door. So that's really important. There's going to be obviously ongoing pressure on rich countries to ramp up their finance because they missed the target they were supposed to reach, 100 billion US dollars annually. They're also going to be working on the new dialogue for a new climate finance target, which will be for 2025. But one positive sign is that this will be based on an assessment of what the needs are rather than what rich countries want to cough up. Whether they follow that, of course, is another matter. I don't think this COP is going to be have as much hype as COP26, but it's really important because the Paris rule book is now written and a lot of it is just getting down and doing the trudge, implementing the agreement and assessing progress. And there will be a global stock take, not this year, but in a few years' time, and they're working out all the modalities for that as well. So that's the big ticket items are how much more mitigation will ramp up. Just think of the vulnerable forum. That's about 48 countries, one to... 0.2 billion people who are in the front line of climate change. They want NDCs, that's nationally determined contributions, ramped up every year through to 2025 when the parties cough up their next target for 2035. So ambition is really the critical issue. Goodness. So how's your ambition looking for this year ahead? You know, when we invite you back at the end of the year, you know, what is the best possible outcome just from your perspective and, you know, a bit of a prediction, do you think it will happen? Well, on the positive side, the IPCC, that's the big scientific body, will be releasing uh, its working group three report, which is on all aspects of mitigation. And there'll be a final synthesis report of all their findings just before COP27. That will concentrate the minds of the negotiators. So ideally, we want all the rich parties to meet that 100 billion finance uh, goal, but actually exceed it. But more likely, they will meet it. We want successful talks on starting to ramp up ambition for the next climate target. But my worry is that a lot of the rich countries are very distracted with their huge deficits and budget blowouts. And so it's going to be tricky for them to reach deep into their pocket because we need quadrillions, not just billions. So that's going to be a critical issue. The biggest breakthrough at COP26 was that fossil fuels were put on the agenda for the first time. Up until then, they were like Voldemort. No one ever mentioned them because of the tetchiness of those countries with what I call carboniferous economies. We also saw some coalitions of the willing, a powering past coal alliance and a beyond gas and oil alliance. But ideally, if I could have my dream, the parties would start to develop a just transition for a global phase out. And let me just quote some statistics here because it's really important. The United Nations Environment Programme production cap report says that the party's current fossil fuel plans and projections will produce 240% more coal, 57% more oil and 71% more gas 
by 2030 than is consistent with 1.5 degrees. So we won't get a a just transition plan. It's not going to happen. Egypt is a member of the like-minded group of developing countries, which includes China, India, many big fossil fuel exporters, including Saudi Arabia, and it's a huge exporter of gas. So I don't think they're going to be going down that path, but we might see a few more countries join those coalitions of the willing. But I'd like to leave listeners with a slightly, on a slightly optimistic note. One of the important developments that happened on the sidelines of COP26, which I really hope will be replicated by COP27, was a just transition partnership. This was orchestrated by the EU, France, Germany, the UK and the US, and they put together about $8.5 billion to help South Africa transition from coal. About 80% of South Africa's energy is coal-based. It's an ageing fleet. They have frequent blackouts, but it's a huge employer. We can't leave them in the lurch. So this big bucket of money is going to be poured into South Africa to help it transition in a just way. So I can think of all sorts of exciting arrangements between donors and Major economies, even some of those in the G20, which South Africa is, but are still poor and need huge assistance to transition. So that's probably an optimistic hope. It may not happen, but it remains my fervent hope. It would be a wonderful thing if it did happen. We need to remain hopeful. We do. (laughs) For us to continue our focus and our fight. So, um, well, thank you once again for joining us, Robin, on this first episode. Thanks very much, Cathy. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us today. We might get straight into the questions. And you're here as someone who's been involved in climate science for many, many decades. So we wanted to ask you, what are the gaps between what the science says is required and what the policy responses are and have been in Australia? That's a a really good and a really important question. And the best update, if you like, on the climate science is the report that came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, last year, in roughly the middle of last year, that updated the, the science, what is needed to address climate change in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and also what is needed in terms of slowing down or adapting to the impact of climate change that are happening in Australia. And what we now know is that temperatures are rapidly rising globally and also in Australia, that those are leading to more increases in extreme events like more bushfires, more heat waves, rising sea levels, all of those sorts of impacts and how they need to be addressed. But what is of critical concern was this report provided new information around the risks associated with ongoing greenhouse gas emissions and made it even clearer that all countries need to go to zero emissions of carbon dioxide as quickly as possible and made it even clearer that reducing emissions globally to net zero carbon dioxide before 2050, preferably by 2030, is critically important. And every tonne of carbon dioxide emissions adds to global warming. And that means we've got choices, choices about what needs to be done in Australia and globally because ongoing carbon dioxide emissions increase global warming. We've got a choice. Do we want global warming to increase or do we want to slow it as quickly as possible? Australia is a developed country and it needs to take the lead in reducing greenhouse gas emissions with all other developed countries, just to allow developing countries a bit more time to reduce their emissions. 
David, you've mentioned the IPCC Working Group 1 report last year. This year we're going to see parts two and parts three in that synthesis report two in September. How do you think they're going to play into the COP27 negotiations later in the year? The next two parts of the IPCC assessment process, if you like, part two is the section on impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, and that is due out at the end of February. And in fact, this may well have appeared by the time people listen to this podcast. The subsequent report is called Mitigation of Climate Change, and it addresses the approaches to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, the economics of those different approaches, and then the technologies associated with that. That's due out, I believe, the meeting will finish on April Fool's Day, which may or may not be an appropriate time, and it's due out in terms of public release very early in April. That's going to, both of those are going to be critically important globally and in Australia. First, in terms of looking at the impacts of climate change and vulnerability in the Working Group 2 report, and then in terms of the different approaches to addressing climate change and the costs associated with if you like, the different technologies, the different solutions. One of the things that isn't done well is the costs of the impacts of climate change, the economic costs of climate change impacts in Australia and globally are enormous and they're often ignored. It's not a choice of acting and the costs of doing action. It's the costs of not acting that are not usually reported well in many of the reports. Yeah, so we're really expecting or hoping, I guess, that at COP27 we'll see more of a focus on the impacts and, and really pushing forward on adaptation. What are some of those key adaptation risks for Australia and in our region and, and do you think they're being adequately addressed? We've been seeing many of the sorts of impacts of climate change and the increases in extreme events already occurring. Climate change is not going to just lead to future impacts. It is already leading to significant impacts in many, many different sectors. We've been seeing increases in heat waves, increases in bushfires, and those are leading to massive impacts on communities, on ecosystems, on agriculture. We're seeing changes in rainfall patterns that are having massive impacts on water resources, increases in droughts, but also increases in extreme rainfall events, flooding and droughts. Yes, Australia is a land of drought and flooding rains, but we're seeing, if you like, droughts and floods on steroids, massively bigger impacts across Australia. So adaptation is critically important. And unfortunately, at a federal government level, there's been reduction in funding for climate change impacts and climate change adaptation, except in a couple of different areas. What we do know is that the business sector is asking for more information on climate risks associated with extreme events. The federal government has set up a new organisation called the Australian Climate Service. What it's going to produce is unclear in terms of climate risk information. That's what's being asked for, and we have to stay tuned on what actually happens later this year and over the next five years. But it's critically important for adaptation to know what the future holds 
not to use a crystal ball, but to use the best information from science and climate projections to provide climate risk information for the future and for the present. Thanks so much, David. I think we're all staying tuned to see what emerges this year, but great to have you on the podcast for our season two first episode. Thank you very much for having me, Jackie. Thank you to our guests, Robin and David, for joining us today and to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Jackie Peel. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast produced by Greta Robenstein and Rebecca Markey-Taylor. Our thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, which is taken from their album, Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to the Climate Talks podcast. You'll also find more information about this episode and our guests in the show notes. And follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and at MCF Uni Mel. Thanks for listening.